the startup, grow up, and scale up journey. This is the Pain of Scale, the Notion Capital Podcast. I'm Paul Papadimitriou. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, our Pain of Scale Series 5. And this is our last episode. It was an amazing series. We had amazing guests. Another one today. And thank you to all of you. Uh, there's always more of you, by the way, for having tuned in every week. Fear not, we will be back after a pause later this year. And to be in the know when that will be, simply follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Google Podcasts, any other podcast app, or evidently on Apple Podcasts where you could also rate us, like give us a few stars, like five stars maybe. <laughs> or, since, <That'd> be nice. <laughs> or since many of you gave us great feedback on LinkedIn, also give us a review. And yes, you should also follow us on LinkedIn by searching for Notion Capital there. The website is notion.vc. You can also listen to the past episodes there when you can also contact us via the page called Connect. And so for today, as in every season of our Pain of Scale, we're finishing with the liquidity event, the IPO, the M&A, realizing the value of the dreams, the value of the investments, the strategy and the art of exit. It's an endgame, but also a start to build greater dreams and greater companies. So Stephen, please do us the honors of introducing the guest and perhaps as well your spin on this art of the exiteering. Yeah, that's a great intro. You got me really excited. I, I can't wait now to record <laughs> the next series. Yeah, our guy today is David Eldridge. David is a serial founder, entrepreneur, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a few seconds. Let's just kind of set the scene. Every venture-backed company has one thing in common. They all want to ultimately build businesses that scale and endure and, and dominate a catch creek. But at some point in their journey, they're going to want to realize the value of their endeavors, allowing their stakeholders to realize that investment. But more importantly, to start that recycling, you know, capital and capability to build more and greater businesses. That's the fuel that kind of builds the startup ecosystem. Now, they may end up listing on the public markets or as a European company, probably more likely to be acquired. You know, the interesting thing for us is that exit, it might be 10, 12 years in the distance. And even if they're achieving significant success, it could still be a long way out. And some people say, you know, build a great business and the outcome will take care of itself. And that is true to a very, very great extent. But we also think long-term thinking and planning can have a significant and positive impact on that outcome. And we call this the, the art of exiteering, taking that long-term view in order to maximize the, the enterprise value. Now, David Eldridge founded a company called Alterian. He led that through IPO. It was then acquired by SDL in 2011. He chaired IDEO, a notion company, for six years and that business was acquired in November 2019. Is that correct, David? That's right, yeah. Yeah, by Episerver. Great outcome for the founders, Andrew and Ed. And they've gone on to amazing success at Episerver as well. It's really exciting to see. He's now the chair and formerly CEO of Three Radical, and non-exec director at Navely.com and Precision Point. David, thank you so much and welcome. Great to be here. So let's jump in. Let's go back to that kind of point of view in terms of does the exit take care of itself? Should the founders just focus on building a great business? How do you think about that? Obviously, you've got to build a great business if you want to create value for all of the stakeholders involved. And I think actually part of building that great business is having a really thorough understanding of the ecosystem in which you're operating in. 
What is it you're disrupting? What innovation are you bringing to market? What does that mean for different existing players in the market, as well as for your customers, if you like? And I think that real understanding of the ecosystem, the value proposition, what you're bringing that other people aren't, is obviously going to underpin your growth plans. It's going to underpin your creation of your ideal customer profile. You know, organizations that are thinking long term will not just create their go to market strategy and their ideal customer profile and so on, but they'll think about other parts of their stakeholder group. They'll be creating their ideal employee profile. And actually, I suppose it's my view that as part of that business planning process, which is obviously a living and a breathing document and a a living and a breathing process, you don't just want your ideal customer profile and go-to-market strategies and financial plans and so on. You also need, as well as your ideal employee profile, it's going to dictate a lot of how you get there because that's the most important part of the, the mix, if you like, in executing against the plan. But it's kind of good to be thinking about well, what's my ideal buyer profile as well as part of how I'm disrupting the ecosystem and who should care about what I'm doing? And just keep that as part of the plan, you know, as part of the living document that you keep developing over time. And maybe it's going to change as you go through and you learn and you pivot and you develop the business in different ways. But it's kind of good to have that thought process, I think, from the beginning. I like the simplicity of that, the ideal customer profile, the ideal employee profile, the ideal buyer profile. And we'll come back to that because I certainly think that was an interesting factor at IDEO. And maybe we can talk about that in a few minutes. So what other things do you think companies should be doing from day one to position themselves for that successful outcome? I think clearly founders and those that are successful as well, obviously, in getting the backing of venture capital firms like Notion and others, have a pretty clear understanding of what disruption they're bringing, what innovation they're bringing, and so on to the marketplace. I think that a really important part of that planning and explaining that and identifying where this is all going to go is kind of that solid understanding of the the different players in the ecosystem and who's getting disrupted, who isn't. And it's not just to identify, you know, your ideal buyer profile and help you with some of your your decisions around where you invest and, and how you innovate. But actually, I think it's kind of core to partnership discussions. And I think that for a lot of organizations, having great partners is not just kind of you know, a real step up and a real help in developing the business. But that's also part of preparing the understanding and and the route to exit, if you like. So certainly, you know, in all the businesses that I'm involved in, I like to try and keep it pretty simple. You know, I'm a simple guy. I like a simple understanding of where we're going as a business and who's involved in that in the wider ecosystem. So generally, for my own purposes, you know, I kind of just try and draw a little diagram of the aspects of the marketplace who we're complementary with and therefore can partner with, who we're competitive with, and therefore we have to think about differentiation and how we're going to disrupt their approach to market. And in the partnership category, I guess, what kind of partnerships we could have, whether that's distribution partnerships, technology partnerships, and so on, and then get out there and form those relationships. You know, there's no harm in going and talking to a broad range of people that are in the space, forming those relationships And it's amazing, actually, what great outcomes can result from making that effort of going out there and talking to the other organizations in the space. I think the interesting thing about those partnerships as well, David, is, of course, aligning yourself with an organization that's ahead of you. They make you better as well, don't they? 
they kind of really sharpen your game. So I think there's multiple benefits to that kind of approach. Yeah, there's huge benefits. You know, at, at Volterian, we started out as a partner-only distribution model. And we did that for several reasons. You know, part of it was we knew that we were a part of the solution to people's business problems. And we needed to align ourselves with the other parts to create the whole solution and drive the business outcome. Another was, you know, we were a small company. And back in those days, in the late 90s, it was difficult for the enterprise to buy from small companies. So finding partners that you could go to market with to help with that credibility and resilience and, and everything was really important. But equally, as you say, having that learning about how organizations are doing things today, either because you know you want to learn and, and get better like they are, or because you want to learn and you want to do it differently to solve the problem in different ways, can be really valuable. And as I say, I think a lot of organizations spend a lot of time, and a lot of CEOs spend a lot of time, worrying, focusing on the development of their own business, and, and maybe are a little bit inward looking at times. And I think it's a huge benefit and a fantastic investment of time to get out there and talk to other people in the space, as I say, even if they're competitors or potential collaborators, forming those relationships, having that learning is a really important part of both developing the business and positioning it for an exit or the next stage of its growth. It's a very, very good point. And we've seen that happen incredibly well at a number of organisations. Maybe it's a bit of a stretch to ask you to kind of paint the story with Altirian in terms of the kind of key steps that led through to successful IPO and then the exit. You might not feel you can do it justice, but it'd be interesting if you could give us a bit of an insight to that experience. Sure. And of course, you know, this this was a, a little while ago. I'm, I'm a bit long in the tooth now. So <laughs> Altirian was formed in kind of 97 we IPO'd in 2000. As you say, the business was sold in 2011. And I think the thing that appealed to the public markets is kind of the same thing that would appeal to the venture capital market or the private equity market, which was some really interesting scalable technology that was solving real business problems that were only going to grow, that had a really clear path to growth because the market opportunity was there and the ability to kind of get out there and convert clients into your way of solving the problem with your technology was easily understood and clearly seen. And particularly for an IPO, you know, the business is, I want to say, well run. It's probably the wrong choice of words, but, you know, that everything, the legal side of it, the processes, the HR processes, the records, you know, the accounting, everything like that is maybe more advanced than for a business of the size that the public markets are looking at. So I think when we listed Alterian, we had all those things. We had a, a technology that had a lot of headroom. And I think the public markets could see that by providing some capital and by providing the profile that being a, a publicly listed company provided was something that was going to give the business you know, a pretty good chance to generate a good return for, for all of the stakeholders over time, if you like. And you know, we were at a stage which is probably a little bit earlier, it's definitely a little bit earlier than businesses with IPO today, where we had a good pipeline of paid pilots, if you like, that people could see we're going to convert. We had a pretty clear machine about how we we're going to do that. And we had an ambition both on the technology roadmap and the geographic expansion side of things to go out there and become a, you know, a serious player in the marketing platform space. But that's what they could see. And that's that's what people invested in, obviously, alongside a management team that they felt would be able to deliver and they, they could trust. And it was great. We, we had a very successful IPO. We generated the capital that we required to take the next step. And that's what we what we set out to do. And, and I guess over the next 10 years or so, 
you know, we had two principal strands of development. We, we very much stuck to what we put in our prospectus in 2000. We invested in geographical expansion predominantly in the US. And we invested in our technology to broaden its capability from an analytics platform to add channels of communication for marketers to be able to use that analytics, execute communications, and kind of in, in real time, if you like, feedback the results of those communications back into the analytics engine to optimize cross-channel communications. And we did that predominantly, well, we did our geographic expansion organically. So we got out there and we hired people in the US and then further afield. And we did our technology development both organically and inorganically. We we made four acquisitions over that period and being a public company obviously really helped with that. Predominantly technology acquisitions to round out the different channels to market. We bought an email service provider on the west coast of America. We bought a web content management company that was actually another listed company. We bought a marketing resource management company that was a UK company. We bought a social media listening platform that was in uh, Rochester, New York, and we integrated those together. And and that's what we did kind of did over those 10 years. And we built up a business with, I guess, 1,500 enterprise clients worldwide and one of the first cross-channel marketing platform companies there were. Alongside that, I think the, the luxury we had with the capital that we'd raised through an IPO was that we could think about licensing models slightly differently to some of the other players at the time. So instead of following the traditional path of the shot in the arm of a perpetual license and starting each quarter with nothing, we actually started from the beginning with subscription licenses. So whilst we weren't a full SaaS business, I'm not sure it had been invented then. I don't um, think anyone knew the word. Yeah, exactly. We were a subscription license business. And so, you know, we managed to build up repeatable revenues and so on, which is so important, I think, for the for the public markets. Yeah. And I think, you know, you said something at the beginning about, you know, just a well-run business, that there's some fundamentals that founders do need to think about right from the very beginning that will set themselves up that, that actually, if an acquisition happens or an IPO, that, that runs smoothly. I remember talking to Eldar Tuvi, who was the founder of ScanSafe. And when I asked him about the exit process when they were acquired by Cisco, he was kind of nonplussed. He said, well, the end game was very easy because we were a well-run business. And I think sometimes we take those things for granted. I'm just going to jump onto IDEO. And we've already talked about the partnership strategy and your point of the CEO, looking up and looking out and understanding the marketplace and building those strategic partnerships. I saw that happening quite distinctly with IDEO. Was that a conscious strategy to look for those kind of relationships that might be acquirers? Or was it more about a strategy just to say, actually, this is the right thing to do for the firm? Do you know, IDEO had a really fantastic management team, as well as obviously, you know, great other stakeholders and investors around the board. And I think that Ed and Andrew and the rest of the team did a really good job of not just looking inwardly, but looking outwardly too supported by the board and, and advisors and so on in that thought process. You know, they were good at thinking about the ecosystem, at having a deep understanding really of what value they were bringing, who they were competing with, who they were complementing, and forming relationships that just naturally then are the kind of relationships that could lead to acquisition. So I wouldn't say that, that we as a company sat around, you know, every month and said, well, who's the top acquirer this month? You know, let's get on the phone to them. I don't think it has to work that way. I think it kind of naturally goes together with who are the right organizations to try and form partnerships with anyway, because we're really complementary and we bring value to each other. How long before the exit video did you actually start working towards it and planning 
for it. One of the great things about IDEO was we weren't running out of road in terms of market opportunity or in terms of the passion of the people involved in the business or the capability of the people involved in the business. And so we always had lots of options open to the business. And I think at each stage, good businesses and good boards will say, well, okay, the next stage of our development, we've got multiple options here. We can carry on as we are. And we can seek to develop the business without fresh capital, if you like. We can inject fresh capital, either from the private or the public markets, or we can seek an acquisition and an exit. Now, obviously, you know, at different times and for different stakeholders, they'll have different drivers towards which of those kind of routes they prefer. But again, at IDEO, we're fantastically lucky to have very supportive stakeholders and investors who were happy to support management in in whatever the right route was to continue to create value. So so actually, you know, I wouldn't have said that at IDEO, we sat around and we said, well, we need to exit, you know, within a year. That means we've got to start this process and that process and the other. We were always thinking about, well, okay, what are our options for the next stage of development of this business? And the process that we actually ended up going through was one because we'd had various discussions and and approaches from people, but, you know, possibly not at a level that we felt was optimal. We decided that what we really needed to do was create optionality for all the stakeholders. We decided that rather than initiate either just a fundraising process or just an exit process, what we should do is run a dual track where both options were open to us. And it was really interesting that there wasn't a requirement to go down the exit route because actually we could have raised capital. We did a dual track IPO and strategic sale. We could equally as happily have gone down the, the IPO route, raised capital and taken the business to the next level as an independent public company, if you like, as opposed to selling it. I think that gave everyone lots of optionality, lots of confidence and the ability to choose the right path ultimately for the business and the stakeholders. Yeah, and it was a well-run process. And I think it's a brave step to take because you do need to create that optionality, don't you? You've got to create some competition to give you the best outcome. Exactly, exactly. And, and we had lots of debates at the board, as you can imagine, about the best way to go. And I think ultimately everyone was very happy with the process that we ran. It was really hard work. <laughs> I'm sure you can imagine running you know both an ipo and a sale process full bore in parallel but clearly there are overlaps and a lot of the work that we did on the ipo track meant that once we'd ultimately decided that there was a viable offer on the table or that there was an offer on the table that was attractive you know that could feed into short circuit the process of completing that while in parallel keeping the ipo alive to make sure that you know everyone was kept honest if you like are there any particular kind of third parties or organisations that kind of played a part in that dual track process that you want to give a shout out to? So, again, you know, one of the benefits of being long in the tooth is that you get to work with a broad range of, of different people and different advisors and you get to learn how they work and you get to form, I think, good working relationships with people that particularly in kind of the venture backed end of businesses that you know are, are relatively small growth businesses you want the right kind of advisors to be working with we obviously did beauty parades across the piece when we're looking at the dual track process and we ended up with chemical genuity who could handle both the public market track as well as the strategic sale route. And, and actually, Canaccord Genuity, before, recently before we appointed them, had bought a company called Petsky Prunier, 
out of New York who are more of an M&A boutique to augment their M&A capabilities in the space in kind of the information technology, data and marketing space. And I'd worked with both Canaccord on the public market side and Petsky Prunier, who'd bought the email company for me at Alterian. So kind of knew both of them well and knew that both they presented well and the board were happy to work with them, but also that they would do a great job. And in, indeed they did. And they were clearly fundamental to the process of keeping both of those tracks going with separate teams, but making sure that their information requests, you know, that the way they were handling everything was actually feasible for management in a relatively small business to, to execute on, if you like. And then alongside that and the broker's capability were, you know, you, you need good lawyers, good accountants and good other advisors in the piece. People that, of course, they're going to turn up things that need to be fixed as part of any of these processes, but they don't just turn them up and say, oh, here's a problem. They turn up and say, well, we found this, but here's the solution and we've kind of already done it for you. Just help us out with these bits and pieces. And I'm lucky to have worked with a lot of lawyers, a lot of accountants in the past. We used Osborne Clark on the lawyer side of things for both sides of the dual track and we used BDO on the accountant side. And they both work really well together with the brokers, I think, to make it as smooth a process as possible for management and for the interested parties, if you like, you know, when you are in such an intense period. It's certainly something we encourage people to do is to build the network of advisors, whether it's the bankers, the brokers, the lawyers, the accountants, because you can't compensate yourself for the fact that you're going through an exit process probably for the first time. And you need to be surrounded by people who know how to do this and have done it over and over again. And that's what you get with the likes of Canaccord and Osborne Clark and BDO and so on and so forth. One of the most interesting challenges that we see, David, is when you've got multiple investors and stakeholders around the board. How critical is it to get that alignment? Because you might have a, an early stage investor who wants to realise their capital. You might have a later stage investor who's only been in for a year or two. That's be a really big challenge for founders to reconcile, as well as their own personal needs as well. One of the, I think, issues that a lot of venture-backed businesses have is is aligning the different stakeholders. And some people, some of those stakeholders may well be VC firms that have invested out of a particular fund that's coming towards the end of its lifetime, if you like. You know, others might be earlier in that process. There might be the management who who kind of aren't ready to exit. And of course, exits mean lots of different things to different people. You know, in the case of IDEO, I think that the guys made a fantastic decision to go down the route of joining forces with Episerver because, you know, clearly whilst it was an exit for, for some of the providers of capital that were nearing the end of their fund and, and it was a good exit, it was also an opportunity for management to take part in a bigger business and be a really important part of that. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is there's lots of different aspects of choosing which route to go down. And I think having a really open and effective discussion ongoing as to where people are on that and finding solutions that would match key aspirations of those stakeholders is kind of an important thing to be happening. It's no good, you know, find yourself in a position where you haven't had those discussions and all of a sudden it's important that the business has an exit because, you know, the provider of capital wants, wants their money back or whatever it might be. I think that needs to be an ongoing and open discussion. If you were going back to the beginning again and you're working with some super early stage founders that have just taken Series A money and they've got no thought of an exit, probably many years in the future, what would you say to those guys based on the experiences you've had? I think we touched on earlier on, you know, these guys, the people 
that you're talking about that are leading these businesses, they are exceptional people. You know, they need to be exceptional people and they will have a fantastic vision of where they're going. I would encourage them to think about that in terms of the ecosystem in which they're operating, not just their ICP, the ideal customer profile, but how they're going to create the really fantastic team they're going to need to execute, which, by the way, will be a fantastic piece of the puzzle when it comes to an exit as well, because clearly that's uh, something really important that the acquirer is, is looking to. Every acquisition that I've done, you know, the management team that I've got as part of that has been an absolute core piece of, of wanting to do the transaction. And, and you know, looking back at IDEO, they really formed a fantastic team that I think was a very attractive group of people for the acquirers and for the potential public market investors to see that they'd be able to execute that. And as I say, the ideal buyer profile, so think about that ecosystem, look out as well as in, don't spend all of your time. I was very guilty of this as CEO of a public company you know, focused on my quarterly numbers all of the time. I didn't spend enough time out with competitors, with other people in the space, in the ecosystem. I would encourage people. It feels like a luxury, but actually it can add so much, so much value. So yeah, you know, obviously you've got the vision, you're going to get out there, you're going to go to market, you're going to build an innovative product that's disruptive. Don't forget the team that you're building and how that looks as well. Don't forget to network in your ecosystem. You know, I would say, and this is something you probably kind of alluded to around advisors, that advisors obviously can be the professional services firms. I'd also make sure that clearly you're partnering with the right providers of capital, that you have a shared vision with and that you can actually have an honest and grown-up discussion as the business develops and, and as different options present themselves. And also you make sure that you've got an effective board and mentors for the key people depending on what stage you're at and the different stakeholders involved, I'd say kind of an independent chair can be extremely valuable. And, you know, that's something that will work not just for the development of the business, but also in the exit process where if you've got people that have done it before, that know where the pitfalls are, that can really, you know, dedicate some time to help management with that process, whether it's fundraising, exit or a dual track combination of both, then that's, that's something important to get in place early really build those working relationships, that trust, and have all of that in place for when when the excitement of an exit process gets underway. David, thank you. It's, it's been a fascinating conversation. And I hope it's not too long before we find you working at another one of our portfolio companies <laughs> as an advisor or as a, as a chair. We'll have to get our heads together on that. <laughs> yeah. David, thank you. That was a great conversation. And I look forward to working with you again in the future. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me here. 